Okay. You've been warned, right? PG-13 message. I think it'll be good for teens, but I go, go and be with Dan if you can. If you have little kids, consider taking them up to see Miss Beth. I thank you for joining us. We are in the middle of a series on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible's book of Judges. We call our series Right in the Eye, and as promised, we're about to get, again, like I said, a little PG-13 I, I had thought maybe mildly R-rated, but it's not really. It's mostly PG-13, but buckle up. We're going to pray and jump right in. All right, so join me in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for gathering us together as your community today, as your ecclesia. Thank you for giving us this ancient wisdom. Thank you for showing us just how people are, but also how you are. God, as we continue this morning, use your word to enlighten us and to draw us closer. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're getting started. We're going to start by considering this question. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? I told you we're jumping right in here. Now, because we're all people, because we're all human, though we might not like it, And though many of us rather not think about it, I think we can all relate to this question. Everybody here can think back to a time, whether it was yesterday or 20 years ago or any time in between when we faced this dilemma. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? But we probably didn't think of it in those exact terms. It probably in our brains went more like this. Mmm, I'd really like to have that. What's that? Could be a lot of things. Could be something we shouldn't think about. Could be something we shouldn't do. Something we shouldn't eat. Or something we shouldn't drink. Or something we shouldn't inhale. Or something we shouldn't consume. Or someone we shouldn't even consider. But whatever that was for us, our bodies wanted it. But inside, our conscience let us know that we ought not go there, that we ought not give in to it. Now, maybe in that moment we thought, yeah, I want it all right, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to work out the way that I hope. Or, yeah, I'm drawn to it but I don't want anyone to ever find out I've given in to it. But after our consciences warned us, what what do we actually choose to do about it? What do we actually choose to do when our body wanted something that our heart knew was wrong? See, this is a really important question that we as human beings have to deal with. And now, if you are young enough still to find yourself thinking, I haven't done anything like that yet. If you're still on that side of things, this could actually be one of the most important questions you'll ever consider. Because the way that you answer this question has the potential to determine the trajectory, the path of your whole life from that moment on. If you've been around a little longer, you already know this. If you've got a little more experience under your belt, you're already in a position to ask, well, how would my life be better today if I didn't 
give into what my heart wanted back then? Where would I be today if I hadn't thought about him or her? Or purchased that thing I shouldn't have purchased? Or consumed that thing I shouldn't have consumed? Or taken that thing I shouldn't have taken? Or gone with that person I shouldn't have gone with? Things like that. If you don't answer this question correctly, it could deliver you to a place from which you'll never escape. It could send you down a road that has no off-ramp. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Now recall that the book of Judges, which we've been looking at for a few weeks now, records the history of a roughly 300-year period between the entry of the Hebrew people into the promised land following their enslavement in Egypt in about 1407 B.C. and the ascension of King Saul in about 1020 B.C. During that period, Israel was ruled by judges. So there were 12 tribes of Israel, and the judges were appointed to help administer the law. God's law came from God. God was the king. The judges were there to administer God's law. But this is a bad time in the history of ancient Israel. It was a time, as we've talked about, characterized by seven cycles. And in each of those cycles, the people of God would disobey God's law, and then disaster would befall them. And they'd suffer the consequences of their decisions. And then they'd cry out to God for help. And then God would send a deliverer to them, a judge, and the judge would come and save them. And at the end of the book of Judges, where we began our series, we read this. You'll remember, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, in those days, everyone made their own decisions based on what they saw. Kind of like the way the world's trending today. And the reason that Israel kept getting into trouble was because instead of looking up to God to make their decisions, they looked around to take their marching orders from the people and the culture around them. This practice motivated them to try to be like all the surrounding nations, the pagan nations, instead of a nation devoted to God and a nation under the authority of God. So over time, God's people learned that as they leaned into their freedom from having to keep God's law, they actually lost their freedom altogether. And they became indistinguishable from and then subservient to the same nations that they copied. During this period, there were 12 judges. Two of those judges were pretty well known. Those two judges are Gideon and Samson. We're going to talk about Gideon next week. Now, of the two of those judges, Samson is the most famous. So today we're going to look at Samson's story. And the reason we're going to talk about Samson is because the trajectory of Samson's life mirrored what was going on in Israel. And as we're going to see, it mirrors the things that are going on in our lives as well. So recall that God had a specific plan and a specific purpose for Israel. God established Israel to be a light to the other nations. Well, similarly, God had a specific plan and purpose for Samson. God designed it so that Samson would draw a great deal of attention because of his great strength. And when people noticed Samson's great strength, Samson would be able to give God all the honor by attributing his strength to God. Makes sense, right? You know, 
And this is going to be a, a silly analogy, but I can't help it because it's where my brain goes. You guys familiar with Spider-Man? Spider-Man? Yeah, Spider-Man. Every time Spider-Man saved somebody or captured a criminal or something like that, do you remember what he did back in the cartoons? He would leave a calling card on the person, on the, on the tied-up criminal, the guy stuck in the webs for the police, and would say, courtesy of your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It was like, this took place because of Spider-Man's power. Well, that's kind of sort of the way God wants us to do things. It's like, I do something kind, I do something nice, I do something helpful, and I go, don't, don't thank me. It's courtesy of your friendly neighborhood, God. God did this. I didn't do this. The guy who led me to Jesus, I, I've called him over the years, and I keep saying, man, you really changed my life. He goes, I didn't do anything. God did it all. Mm, wow, it's very true. Anyway, in the same way, during the period of Judges, just as Israel took their eyes off of God, instead of continuing to look to God, Samson took his eyes off of God, and he looked around, and he chose to be like all other men. Specifically, Samson took his focus off of God and directed it all to Philistine women. Even though Samson was very familiar with God's law, even though Samson was a judge, and even though Samson had been called by God for a very specific role, just as Israel had been established for a very specific role in the world, Samson determined that when it came to sex, he's going to be like all the other men. That created a problem. So with that background in mind, here's how Samson's story began. We start off in Judges chapter 13. Samson's parents, his father, Manoah, not Moana, but Manoah, and his mother, Jamie Lynn. I'm kidding. We don't know her name, so that's just what I call her. Samson's father and mother wanted to have a family, but they were unable to conceive. And as happens in a number of Bible stories, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and assured them that they were going to have a child, and that child was going to be a son. But there were some strings attached. And in connection with the promise, here's what the angel told them. It's in Judges 13.4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant. This is the angel talking to Jamie Lynn. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. In other words, God has something special planned for your son. So you're going to raise him to be separate and apart from all the other people because God will have him do some extraordinary things. Now, God told them that their son was going to be a Nazarite. By the way, we'll take a little detour here. Don't confuse a Nazarite with a Nazarene. Okay? A Nazarene is a person from the region in Israel known as Nazareth. Jesus was a Nazarene. Okay? A Nazarite was an Israelite. It could be a man or a woman who took a special vow to God regarding how they would live for a period, a temporary period during their life. The terms of this vow can be found in number six. I don't read you all the terms. It's pretty complex, but you can go read it in number six. But briefly, a Nazarite vowed to abstain from wine and other fermented drink. Remember, lots of, these, lots of the drinks that they drank then were fermented because drinking water was unsafe. It had bacteria. It could kind of kill you. So you ferment things, and it kind of kills a lot of the, a lot of the dangerous bacteria. 
But they had to abstain from wine and other fermented drink and from vinegar from wine and other fermented drink. They had to abstain from grapes, grape juice, and raisins. A Nazarite also vowed to let their hair grow long and never to use a razor on their head. And, and this one's kind of random, but here it is, to avoid going near a dead body. Not really sure why that one's in there, but there you have it. Now, typically, a Nazarite vow was something a person would choose for themselves, usually following a time of struggle or a time of difficulty. So what you do is you go through this period of struggle, and then you say to God, God, for the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, I am going to keep these Nazarite vows. I'm going to stay away from all those things just for a limited period of time during which the adherent would scrupulously dedicate themselves to God. Again, there's a period of 30 to 90 days usually. However, with Samson, his Nazarite vow was a lifelong commitment that his mother had to make to the angel. So after Samson enters his adult years, remember back then it was around 13, that's where the bar mitzvah age comes from, around 12 for girls. Samson was sent to the land between Israel and the Philistines to serve as a border guard, if you will. Also around this time, one of the gifts that God had given Samson manifested itself as Samson's gift of extraordinary strength. And because of his strength, Samson was recognized as a leader, and then he would eventually become a judge. It was also there on the border that Samson discovered girls. Okay, so he'd been 13 years old, he's into puberty already, and he discovers girls, particularly Philistine girls. So throughout the story of Samson, Samson's getting himself into trouble with Philistine women. Interestingly, other than his birth, the first thing we learn about Samson in the scripture is this. It come from Judges 14.1 uh, 14, and 2. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Samson went down there, found himself a Philistine woman, and then ran back home and told his parents, I'm in love and I'm loving. I don't care who knows it. <laughs> now, if you're tracking, you'll know that that's not exactly what his Israelite parents wanted to hear. Why? Well, first off, she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Philistine. And the Hebrew people really frowned upon mixing with non Israelites. Now, incidentally, I think it's important to know for today's news and whatnot, the Philistines are not connected in any way with modern Palestinians. The Philistines were ethnic Greeks. They were not Arabs. They were ethnic Greeks who'd settled along Israel's southern coast, the Gaza area, around the same time that the Hebrews entered the land. Note that this wasn't, by the way, a racial thing as we've come to understand racial things. It was an ethnic thing. In those days, people stayed safe by marrying within their own communities, oftentimes within their own families, because foreign countries, foreign peoples had a tendency to kill other people. Okay, and to avoid that, you stay inside your own family. So the Israelites were at war with the Philistines, so marrying a Philistine woman would have been not only awkward at the Thanksgiving table, but also quite dangerous for Samson. All right, notwithstanding, again, Samson goes down to Timnah and says to his parents, go get me that woman. So not only was Samson risking his own safety, but telling his parents to go down there and get the Philistine woman as his wife, he was putting them at risk too. 
But his father and mother, in hearing that request, replied this way. Can't you meet a nice Jewish girl? (laughs) That's a paraphrase. Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? In other words, Samson, booby, you're special. You're a special boy. You've been called by God. God has something special for your life. Can't you find a nice girl among our people? The Levensteins have a lovely daughter. But Samson was not dissuaded. So Samson says, verse 3, get her for me. She's the right one for me. And, And here's a little something that you get from the original Hebrew, which is really cool. The phrase, she's the right one for me, in Hebrew is almost identical to the phrase we've been talking about for a few weeks now. The phrase that comes up over and over and over again in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So instead of following God's command, Samson did precisely what he wanted to do. And as a result, this part of the story ended horribly. Samson went down into Philistine territory, and he got married to this girl. And then after he married, Samson proceeded to taunt the Philistines. He's kind of a bully. So he tricked them with a riddle, and then he killed 30 of their men, and then he tied torches to the tails of 300 foxes, and then proceeded to burn down their grain stores, vineyards, and olive groves. (laughs) That nutty prankster. (laughs) He's killing people all over the place. (laughs) Gotcha. Anyway, well, as you can imagine, the Philistines were not happy with Samson. So in retaliation, they threw Samson out of their territory. They took his new wife, who's a member of this Philistine woman. They married her off to somebody else, to a Philistine. And then, because of her association with Samson, they murdered her. And then they murdered her father for good measure. Then Samson retaliated by doing what? By killing more Philistines. Later on, Samson returned to Philistine territory. He returned to Gaza. And he spent the night with a a Philistine prostitute. And when the Philistines found out, they surrounded him and intended to kill him. But God gave Samson the supernatural strength to escape. Now, I'm telling you all this for a reason. I'm telling you all this so you can see just how Samson's lust for Philistine women was leading him nowhere good. Now, all of that is just a very quick summary of Samson's story. Please, if you would, go back to Judges 13, 14. Check the whole story out when you get home. It is a fascinating story. You won't believe it's in the Bible, but there it is. Well, next... Samson's story kind of slows down. So the first couple of stories happen very quickly, very little details just happen very quickly. Now the story slows down when we read about Samson's next sexual conquest. And it's a conquest with a woman whose name is likely familiar to you. Her name was, anybody? Delilah. Very good. So now be prepared for one of the crazier stories in the Hebrew Bible. And as we walk through it, a question is going to arise A question that will honestly puzzle all the women here more than it will puzzle the men. Hmm. And the question is this. How could any man be that stupid? Is it even possible that a man could be so enamored with a woman that he would make the same stupid decision over and over and over again? 
Now, we men in the room know for certain the answer to that question is, well, yes. It's not only possible, it's going to happen every time. It's almost a given. Though the women will find it hard to believe, every man here and every man listening to us today knows that there has been at least one time in each of our lives we have been so smitten with a woman that we've legitimately done some of the dumbest things in our lives. Guys, let me make a recommendation for this part of the message. Keep your eyes on me. Okay, don't turn to your wife. Don't make eye contact. Don't make a face. Try not to say anything, okay? Later on, when you get in the car and you're on your way home, I give you permission to tell your wives that I don't know what I'm talking about. I promise you guys I won't hold it against you. I'm just trying to help you with your relationship, okay? Every man here can look back on their lives to a particular situation that today makes them think, what the heck was I even thinking? Or how could I have been so dumb? Those questions actually have an answer. And the answer is simply this. It's because a man's desire for, all right, I'm going to call it physical intimacy, which is the raciest thing I've ever said in church. A man's desire for physical intimacy is one of the most powerful forces on earth. That desire makes men do crazy things. And ladies, it's just who we are. Men are very, very simple. We need to eat, we need to be encouraged, and we need physical intimacy. Seriously, that is it. That's the whole formula. I I actually, and this is true, I actually once set out to write a book, the definitive book on the subject, but this is all I came up with. That's it. And I could fit that on like half of a three-by-five card on one side. Even if I wrote in really big block letters, that, that's not even a pamphlet's worth of material. So there's nothing really to write and publish. Just those three things. And truth be told, if we had to pick just one of those things, let's just say we'd be okay starving. Now, ladies, the reason I'm telling you this is that when we read what we're about to read, even though you're going to want to roll your eyes and you're going to think, come on, there's no way a man would be that stupid. I want you to know, ladies, yes, way, okay? So as I read Samson's story, I'm going to be picking on the men a little bit, but ladies, you're not completely innocent either. Is it getting hot in here or is it just me? All right, so... Ladies, don't walk out, please, because in order to get the whole lesson that the text has for us, you need to hear it to the end. So yes, men are simple, and ladies, sometimes you fuel our simplicity because you can be a bit naive. And by that I mean, while the men will do the dumbest things when it comes to a woman, sometimes women are inclined to believe the dumb things that we men tell you over and over and over again. Oh, I just need to make sure we're compatible. Oh, we, we should see if we're even able to be together before we make any commitments. We don't need a piece of paper to prove we love each other, honey. I don't know the lines you ladies have been given. But if you look back on some of your past relationship mistakes, I'm sure there are many other lines that you believed as well that turned out not to be true. And even though it's always been this way, I don't know, for some reason today it just seems worse. And as a pastor, one of the most difficult things I see is when so many great 
godly women invest so many years in a dishonest man who simply isn't worth the investment. But because the male sex drive is so powerful, men are going to keep on doing what they've always done. God created sex as a wonderful thing. But when it's part of a relationship that is outside of the bounds of what God created it for, it can become an exceptionally dangerous thing. And you don't have to be a Christian or even agree with me to understand that. You just have to experience it one time on your own to see what I'm talking about. All right, back to the sermon. Verse 4, sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Samson was in love again. And when the Philistine leaders found out, they saw, oh, this might give us a tactical advantage against our enemy. So what did they do? So they, verse 5, went to her and said, See if you can lure Samson into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. All right, so you're getting this. So the Philistine men went to Delilah and they offered her a ridiculous sum of money, about 90 grand, $90,000 in today's money. They offer a lot of money to use her feminine wiles to lure Samson into exposing his weaknesses to her so that they could subdue him and get him out of their hair. All right, so verse 6. So Delilah Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. That's pretty straightforward. Like, she's not beating around the bush. It's like, oh, so, strong man Samson, how can I make you not strong so I could subdue you? Now, without getting more explicit than I need to, I think it's safe to assume that she said this to him in a moment when his guard was down, when his defenses were already down, if if you know what I mean. It was in a moment where he wasn't really trying to defend himself. He was compromised, if you will. And if you're thinking, come on, he had to know what she was up to, right? I'm seriously, could any man be that stupid? Well, the answer again is yes. Tell me, Samson, how can you be subdued? Clearly, Samson was somewhat subdued already when she asked him this question. And there's not a man here who isn't thinking, I can can see how that would happen. Yeah, sure. So we go to verse 7. Samson answers her. If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Now, if you're tracking, maybe you're scratching your head at this and you're thinking, dude, God's made it pretty clear. He's arranged that you can do big things for him. He's given you all this strength. Why would you ever tell anyone how they can make you just like any other man? Well, he said that, and with that, the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. And then, and this gets a little weird, okay, with the men hidden in the room... That's a strange scene, isn't it? She's seducing him, and she's t- telling her Philistine buddies, her relatives and friends, come hide, behind, hide in the closet, hide behind the drapes over there. With the men hid in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easy as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a, frame, a flame, so the secret of his strength was not discovered. Now, in a perfect world, Delilah would have cut and run. I mean, this guy couldn't be trusted, to be honest, but that's not what happened, okay? So instead, the story continues. Delilah says to Samson, you have made a fool of me. 
You lied to me. Of course he lied to her. Lying's already kind of the theme with these two. Did she seriously expect he was going to get honest all of a sudden? Did she seriously expect anything different? Well, I guess she did because she asked again. Verse 10, come on now, tell me how you can be tied. And their toxic game continued. Samson says, all right, all right, I'll tell you. Verse 11, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. And guess what? It happened again. So if you think about this scene, Delilah probably got Samson all liquored up, tied him up with new ropes, and again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. And again, Delilah looks at Samson with her puppy dog eyes. And she kind of she whined to him and said, All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? Now, by this point, one or both of them should have said, you are a head case. I am out of here. And just gotten up and walked away from this dysfunctional relationship. But that is not what happened. Whoa, that was close. Instead, they just kept on going. So I ask you a question. Was Samson really that stupid? Yes, but I want you to know this. He wasn't stupid because of some kind of character flaw. He was that stupid because he was a man. That's just the way he's wired. And Delilah clearly had a sway over this guy, so much so that it overwhelmed both his common sense and his desire to fulfill God's plan for his life. So Samson next told her this. If you were to weave the braids of my head, remember, he'd never cut his hair, so he had very long hair, probably uh, it's kind of a dreadlock thing going on. If you were to weave the braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. And that's what she did. And when she screamed, do you want to say it together? We don't have to. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Well... Delilah knew it was time to bring out the big guns. So she decided next to deploy the L word. Here's what she said. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Ladies, are you beginning to see it? Are you beginning to see just how much power you have over us? But she was just getting started because it was time for the secret weapon. And now I just want to take a moment and I want to remind everybody, I didn't make this stuff up. I am just reading it from the Bible, okay? This is not my opinion. I'm just reading it from the Bible, all right? Verse 16. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And that worked the way it usually works. (laughs) So finally, he told her everything. Here's what he said. Verse 17. No razor has ever been used on my head because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Before I was gone, God called me for something important. 
And so when people see me and my long hair and my strength, they'll know there's something special about me. When they see my strength, they'll know that the Spirit of God resides on me. But because I love you, Delilah, and you asked, I'll tell you the truth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. So once he'd fallen asleep, the Philistines came in, and they went all supercuts on the guy. And when she said to him again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that by then the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, and they took care of the issue that was vexing him his entire life. They gouged out his eyes. That had been his problem, his eyes. And they took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. And though Samson was able to take a bunch of Philistines with him, he died as a prisoner. He died in shackles. Isn't that a horribly tragic story? Are you asking yourself, seriously, how is it possible that anyone could be that dumb? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. When you do what is right in your own eyes, when you live your life giving in to the draw of the kingdom of covet and pay no attention to the kingdom of conscience, when you fail to turn your life over to the God who created you and loves you like a loving father, when you do that, You do dumb things, and you find yourself in dumb places. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And it's only in retrospect you can see just how stupid you were. All right, so how does this story apply to you? That's what you want to know. Well, here it is. When God calls you, when you become one of his people, you have no idea what he wants to do in and through your life once you surrender your life to him. See, our God is a God of miracles. I mean, we see this throughout the scripture. Think about it. About 1,300 years after Samson, there was another Jewish man who had his life absolutely changed by fully surrendering his life to and placing his faith in Jesus. And he wrote this to the Jews and Gentiles of his day. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? If you're a Jesus follower, the same Holy Spirit that set Israel up for great things, if Israel would only obey their heavenly father, the same spirit that empowered Samson to do amazing things, if he'd only stayed faithful, is the same spirit that resides in every single one of you. Paul said, back one, you are, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And because of this, you need to remember to honor God with your bodies. You are like Samson. You are like the nation of Israel. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit inhabits your body and you have no idea of the amazing things that God wants to do through you. But I do know that the last thing you want to do is get to a point in your life where you can only look back with regret that you didn't surrender your life to Jesus and that you didn't allow God into your heart so that he could reveal his plan for you. But that's your future if you're like Samson. And that's your future if you're like the nation of Israel. And instead of listening to God, you continue to listen to your cues and take your cues from the world and do what everybody else is doing. 
And the last thing you want to do is exchange your potential for something that lasts for eternity for something that only lasts for a short season in your life. Sexual sin has unique ability to deter you from God's plan in your life. You see, God wants what's best for you. And he doesn't want you to sacrifice your future blessings for something that you're going to come to regret in the end. So back to the question that started us off today. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Your answer to this question will be determined by whether or not you're going to live from the inside out or from the outside in. Whether or not you've surrendered your heart to God and asked him to renew your mind and asked him to renew your conscience so that you see as he sees and know how to respond as he would respond so that instead of doing what's right in your own eyes, you would do what you know is right in your own surrendered heart because God loves you and he's called you in this area to be different from everybody else. Not because God is against something, not because God is against someone, but because God is for you. What are you going to do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? And would you be willing in this area to surrender everything to your heavenly father? Would you be willing to say, God, I want to learn what it means to honor you with my body. I hope you'll learn to pay attention to that still small voice of God speaking through your yielded heart from the kingdom of conscience. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this bizarre story that actually applies to each one of us. Father, please give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard. And Father, for somebody here or somebody who's watching or listening, I pray that you motivate their heart so that they have the strength to walk away from this powerful temptation and invite you into their heart, into this area of their life, so that they can lean into that which they know in their heart is the right thing to do. So, Father, give us the courage and strengthen our faith to serve you with our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.